I'd like to share with you three quick stories from my past summer. Uh, story number one, I was at the pool with a bunch of families when this one toddler decided that he needed to be able to swim all by himself. He couldn't, but he demanded. He would not put on his life jacket, and he wouldn't let anybody help him. He kept saying over and over, I'd do it, I'd do it, I'd do it, right up until the moment when he actually entered the water. And then he may have still been saying, I do it, but we couldn't tell. It sounded more like oops uh, from under the water. Don't worry, we got him at no damage done. Just he learned his lesson. Second story, we were in downtown Dallas when our attention was arrested by this, uh, this poor drunk. And, uh, and we noticed this guy because the, the poor fool was so sauced that when he, when he tried to stand up and walk, he fell back on his backside into a bush. Okay? Third story, story number three from my summer. I was in a boat. I was spotting for a friend who was learning to water ski. And, uh, and he kept trying and trying, but he just couldn't get up on the skis. And, and he kept, the problem was very obvious to all of us who grew up skiing. He kept trying to pull himself up. He was trying to do it by himself, and it, it doesn't work. And, and he just kept falling and falling. Finally, he understood what we were saying. Let the boat do the work. Just stay back. And he, and he popped right up. And he just was zipping across. And, and the power of that ski nautique boat, we were just pulling him across. I wish you could have seen the smile on his face. Now, I share those three brief vignettes because those three images capture the three main ways that Christians respond to God's Spirit. Sometimes we try to do the spiritual life in our own power. I do it. I do it. We drown. Other times we rely on some other influence besides God to, to run our lives. Uh, intellectualism is very popular. Emotion is popular. Believe it or not, narcotics are becoming popular as a spiritual tool. I'm not making this up. I read a story in the most, the most popular newspaper in America a couple of weeks ago, and it was about how LSD should be used to expand spiritual consciousness. This was not 1968, okay? This is a 2018 story. And that article is absurd. Any influence except God's Spirit is going to leave you flat on your bottom in a bush. The only successful option is to, to fly through life with the Spirit holding you up and pulling you along. Instead of drowning, we can ski through the waves of life tethered to God's Spirit. All God's people said... Amen. For a single sentence summary, look at the headline in our notes. You got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. You see notes in the middle there on the left-hand side. You'll see this headline. We should be like the first Christians. Acts chapter 2 describes how the first Christians learned to water ski. I, I mean, how they learned to be filled with the Spirit. Fifty days after that Passover when Jesus was murdered and resurrected, his followers were gathered together at the Pentecost festival. Suddenly, a sound like a tornadic wind came and filled the house. The book of Acts describes how there were, there were uh, divided tongues of flame that appeared resting on each of them. And when it says each of them, it probably means on the twelve apostles. But the apostles then stepped out and began to speak in different languages, which was a miracle. Because these, these apostles were all from Galilee, and they would only have spoken uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, some Greek. They would have written more Greek than they spoke, and a little bit of Latin. But they were speaking in all of the multitudes of languages from all these people all over the world that were gathered in Jerusalem. They were speaking in their languages. Go ahead, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and let's find verse 4, which summarizes the situation. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Pimplemi is the original term. 
uh, what we translate filled in English. It's a word often employed by Luke. It means to be filled, uh, satisfied, uh, facilitated. Pimplami appears uh, many times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is where Luke probably first considered the term in a spiritual sense. For example, I want you to look at this, uh, this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Solomon has just completed building the awesome temple for God. And the dedication of that temple, the temple dedication service, ends like this. 2 Chronicles 5.13. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, they sang a Michael W. Smith song. For he is good, his love endures forever. That, Seriously, that's where Michael W. Smith got it. They sing, he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord, pimplemi, filled the house of God. The glory of the Lord filled, that's pimplemi. It fills the temple where God's spirit has come to dwell. And because God's spirit is there, notice the human priests can't work. They are no longer in control. God takes over the work. That is pimplemi. It's a word Luke references on purpose. Look at the parallels. This is so cool. In 2 Chronicles, what do we have? We have the priests, right? And they're the priests of this chosen nation. What do we learn in the book of Acts? We learn in the book of Acts that all believers, all these people from all these different countries, anyone who trusts in Jesus is a priest of God. Awesome. Second Chronicles, we have a new dwelling place, right? The temple built by Solomon. What do we have in Acts chapter 2? We learn that God has a new dwelling place, and it is in every single believer in Jesus Christ. In 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 5, we have His glory coming. God's glory comes and fills. In Acts, His glory comes and fills. In 2 Chronicles, the people are no longer in control. The priests can't stand. In, in Acts chapter 2, the people are no longer in control. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. People me. The issue is about control. Now, not in a pagan sense. In, in the old pagan religions, they believed in control, but it was, it was the human doing the right formula to control the deity. That's not the case here. Filling is about God controlling the human. That's why filling in, with the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, is contrasted all the time in the Bible with wine. Th throughout the New Testament, descriptions of filling of the Spirit use drunkenness as a contrast. In each case, the person's controlled, but one person's controlled by God, the other by alcohol. In fact, that contrast is seen there in Acts 2 on the church's first birthday. Uh, slide down to verse 12. Go down in Acts chapter 2 to verses 12 and 13. They, the people, were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. You see, the crowd's astounded. The, the one explanation offered, the only one offered was by some cynical stoners who, who said, uh, hey, they're just, they're drunk, man, it's the influence of the booze. Yeah, man, come on. But in reality, that's not it. They are influenced, overshadowed by God. Now, of course, that brings up an important question that you were likely asking in your favorite uh, Luke Skywalker voice, uh, in your whiny Luke voice. How much does it take? Is there like a certain amount of God's influence we should try to get? Huh? And of course, Yoda gives the correct answer. Hmm, one is filled or not. There is no try. Right? <laughs> By the way, quick aside, some of you may not know that the, the voices are really done for me. I know that's rude and I'm supposed to be teaching for you, but they keep me interested, so that's why I do them. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but the, uh, but the, the suggestions for them come from your children. 
Uh, and I have lots of children in the church who write me all the time and say, do this voice. Do this. So I keep a little file, and when I'm putting a sermon together, I go grab a voice. And this week was Yoda was the requested one I threw in Luke just for good measure. All right. Seriously, Yoda's right, only about this. Um, scripture shows that being filled by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is a binary issue. It's a binary issue. Either one is or is not operating under God's influence. One of the best books ever written on this subject was penned almost a century ago by Lewis Perry Chafer. He was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and I highly recommend his book, He That Is Spiritual. In our notes, you'll see a great run-on quote from Dr. Chafer. Look at uh, what he has to say. By various terms, the Bible teaches there are two classes of Christians. Those who abide in Christ, those who abide not. Those who are walking in the light, those who walk in darkness. Those who walk by the Spirit, those who walk as men. Those who walk in newness of life, those who walk after the flesh. Those who are spiritual, those who are carnal. Those who are filled with the Spirit, and those who are not. You are filled or you are not. There is no try, right? We should learn from our first forefathers. They were filled with the Spirit, and they remind us that Spirit filling is an ongoing command. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, a parallel passage talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit. Spirit filling is an ongoing command, and the contrasts show us this. Look, the contrasts in this passage are really clear. See, walk as wise or walk as unwise. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. You can understand God's will or you can be foolish. You can be filled with the Spirit or you can be debauched with wine. Now, look at those contrasts and think. These contrasts are showing us that spirit filling is a satisfying fellowship with God that sparks wisdom, productivity, understanding. It seeks no fulfillment in anyone or anything else, avoiding both foolishness and the, the evil days, the tyranny of our common culture. And we note that it's an ongoing command because be filled in Ephesians 5.18 is a, is a Greek verb form that indicates continuation. Again, no one explains this as well as Lewis Berry Schaefer. Look, look what he says. In the Bible, the meaning of the phrase filled with the Spirit is disclosed, and the filling of the Spirit is also seen to be the experience of the early Christians. One direct New Testament command is given, Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, or more literally, be being kept filled by the Spirit. Here the form of the verb used is somewhat different from that which is used in connection with the other ministries of the Spirit. The Christian has been born, baptized, indwelled and sealed by the Spirit. He must be getting, being kept filled by the Spirit. It is the revealed purpose of God that the Spirit should be continually ministered unto the Christian. Close quote. Now, Dr. Chafer here brings up another of under, other important biblical terms besides filling, uh, sealing, indwelling. These others we'll discuss some other time. But I think spirit baptism should be briefly explained right now. Baptism is an identification. It is a change of identity. The, the Bible shows that conversion, at conversion to faith in Jesus, every single Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit. It is nothing the Christian controls or has any role in. 
That's very different from filling. Listen to my old teacher, Dr. Stan Toussaint. Um, Stan says, the filling with the Holy Spirit is separate from the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit's baptism occurs once for each believer at the moment of salvation. He quotes a number of passages, uh, Acts 11, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 12, Colossians 12. But the Spirit's filling may occur not only at salvation, but also on a number of occasions after salvation. And he quotes a number of passages from the book of Acts. They're different, and it is really sad when people don't read all the Scripture and they just assume that baptism is the same thing as filling. You know what happens to those people? They end, up, they end up trying to be born again over and over and over. They look for certain signs to let them know that they're really justified by faith in Jesus. It's heartbreaking. Baptism in the Spirit is beyond our kin. It is part of God's identification, His renaming of us as Christ ones, Christians, of those people He justifies. Filling is not a justification issue, it's a sanctification issue that occurs, or at least should occur, over and over and over in the Christian life. Look, here's, here's how Schaefer put it. Filling has to do with the quality of daily life of saved people and is in no way a contrast between the saved and the unsaved, like baptism is. Close quote. My town right now is in the process of taking out a bunch of four-way stops and constructing roundabouts instead. Personally, I am thrilled. <laughs> the many, many thousand miles that I have logged in Britain have convinced me that roundabouts are much more efficient. However, I have three concerns about their use in Frisco. The first is that every time I go on to a roundabout in Britain, a song by the band Yes pops into my head. <laughs> roundabout sticks for days. Yeah, it's horrible. Second concern I have is that I am legitimately worried that I'm going to go the wrong way around these suckers. <laughs> I'm serious because in England, in, in Britain, they go, they go clockwise. And I am, Alan, are you not concerned about that? I'm, I'm a little troubled. Yeah, he's from Yale's, uh, from Wales. They do the same thing. Third concern I have is that all of the type A drivers in this city will not understand how to yield. <laughs> Think about it. They don't stop now at the four-way stop signs. How are they going to yield to the flow of traffic in a roundabout? You see, for a roundabout to work, everyone has to yield to the more powerful flow. That's what you do. Forcing one's way, pushing through small openings, refusing to yield, that makes for a mess. In a very similar way, keeping in step with God's Spirit is all about yielding to His power. His flow determines my pace. His flow determines my direction. In a word, spirit filling is about yielding. Now, let me ask you something. Knowing North Texas drivers, which of these do you think is more likely when our roundabouts open? The wreckage of pushiness or the smoothness of yielding to the flow of traffic? Which one do you think is more likely to happen? The wreckage of pushiness. I have a more important question. Knowing yourself and knowing other Christians... Which of these do you experience more often? The wreckage of pushiness or the smooth flow of yielding to the power of God's Spirit? Let's hear again from Dr. Chafer. Look to the right side of our notes, right side of our notes. To be filled is not the problem of getting more of the Spirit. It is rather the problem of the Spirit getting more of us. We shall never have more of the Spirit than the anointing which every true Christian has received. A spiritual person, then, is one who experiences the divine purpose and plan in his daily life through the power of the indwelling Spirit. The tenor of that life will be the outlived Christ. The cause of that life will be the unhindered indwelling Spirit, close quote. So, how can we let God's Spirit get more of us? 
That's exactly what Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn over there, would you, to 1 Thessalonians 5. I forgot to put a guide up for you. Um, it's just before 2 Thessalonians. There you go. Um, 1 Thessalonians, I'm so sorry. Chapter 5. Uh, I apologize. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll read 16 through 22. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. How can we let God's spirit get more of us? First thing, rejoice and give thanks. That's the command in verses 16 and 18. Rejoice and give thanks. Giving thanks is critical to spirit filling. Now, the reason for this is subtle, but it's really powerful. If I say thank you, I'm recognizing that I'm not owed anything. When my mom gives me a gift, as she does fairly regularly, when I write her a thank you note, what, what am I doing? There's, there's actually two things I'm doing. One is very obvious. I'm, I'm appreciating my mother. But the other is probably more important for my soul. I'm recognizing that she didn't owe me that. It was a gift of grace. I wasn't entitled to anything. This was just a gift of love and grace. That takes me out of the driver's seat, and I become instead the recipient. When a Christian thanks God, we acknowledge that he is graciously giving to us. We are not in charge. We are not entitled to anything. Giving thanks reminds me that I am a child receiving undeserved blessings all the time. And I do mean all the time. Notice verses 16 and 18 detail always, in everything. When we give thanks in everything, we get off our entitlement high horse, and we position ourselves to be filled with the Spirit. But you're no doubt puzzling in your Kylo Ren voice, how can a person possibly rejoice always? Great question, Kylo. Thank you for asking. They can't. Human beings can't. We're not capable of rejoicing always. But with God, all things are possible. And in God's Spirit, it is entirely possible. Read with me Nehemiah's declaration. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, all together. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm sorry, there's a lot of people, hundreds of people in here, and that was, that was really weak. I mean, you realize you read joy and strength? Joy and strength. I mean, that, stand up, that's it, I'm, stand up. I've had it with you people, stand up. <laughs> All right, you need to say joy and strength like you have some joy and some strength. All right, let's yield to the Spirit, and let's say, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen. All right, you can be seated. That was brilliant. Okay. I'll let you sit down since you did that so well. It is, it is a fascinating, self-sustaining cycle. I want you to look at this. Look at this. See how it works. Here's how it flows. I admit my inability apart from God. I recognize I'm a child. What does Nehemiah 8.10 teach me? Well, the Spirit infuses me. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm infused with joy. Because I'm infused with joy, I can then rejoice and give thanks, and that allows me to yield to God. You see, it is a self-perpetuating, beautiful cycle. It starts with admitting I am not and should not be in control of my own fleshly power, and it continues all the way to grateful, joyful yielding to God. By the way, there's a physical parallel to this. Uh, a number of recent studies have shown that smiling actually gives a person extra energy. And I know that's weird because smiling actually uses up energy. But amazingly, study after study is showing that, that when athletes smile in their most difficult moments, it, it, their metabolic processes change. It infuses them with, with a higher metabolic rate. In a similar way, giving thanks and rejoicing engage me with the power of God. 
The joy of the Lord is my strength. Verse 17, we learn to pray constantly or pray without ceasing. The Greek adverb we translate constantly is hilariously fun. Uh, it's adialeptos. It's a term only used by Paul in the New Testament. What makes it so fun is the word is most often presented in medical textbooks. It, it, it represents a, uh, a, <coughs> a persistent hacking cough, right? <coughs> Now, th think about that for a moment. Have you ever, you ever had one of those continual, uh, no, I made you cough, sorry. Um, you ever had one of those coughs that won't go away? You know, the kind they wake you up at night, drive all your family crazy, right? Raise your hand if you've ever had one of those persistent hacking coughs. All right, now, now look at this. God wants us to pray like that. So many times I have heard brothers or sisters of mine say, and, and probably well-intentioned, say, well, I, I don't want to bother God with my needs all the time. I mean, surely he gets tired of hearing me talk about my weakness and my dependence and my desperation. Um, no, no, nothing could be further from the truth. God knows we're weak and sick. That's why he wants to dialogue all the time about our hacking neediness. Years ago, I enjoyed a conversation with Dr. Toussaint about this passage. He said something really struck me. I wrote it down. He said, Wayne, the word pray just means to ask, to admit your need instead of living by your own power. And in Jerry Bridges' wonderful book, The Disciplines of Grace, he says, prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence. So with all that in mind, let's ask ourselves this question. Is there any moment I am not in need? Is there any moment that I am in absolute control of my life? I can force my heart to keep beating. I can compel every hurt in my life to go away. Am I ever really ultimately in control, yes or no? Well, then I, I better be praying, always. Verse 19 adds, don't stifle or quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. But you're amusing in your, uh, in your Han Solo voice, why did it have to be snakes? Oh, sorry, wrong movie. Um, <laughs> sorry. How can I stifle God? I've been quenched in carbonite, kid. I can't imagine doing that to the Holy Spirit, right? Great question, Han. Thank you. The reality is that God is the Christian's father. And just like the great dad that Jesus describes in his parable of the prodigal son, God the Father allows his kids to run away like fools if they so choose. That's why that story of the prodigal son begins with, and the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what God is like. In his sovereign will, he allows people, idiotically, to say no to him. Once again, no one summarizes this stuff better than, than Dr. Chafer. Look what he says. The spirit is quenched by any unyieldedness to the revealed will of God. It is simply saying no to God, resisting the providence of God in the life. The word quench, when related to the spirit, does not imply that he's extinguished or that he withdraws. It's rather the act of resisting the spirit. The spirit does not remove his presence. He has come to abide, close quote. Now, the book of Romans reveals the antidote to our tendency to say no to God, to, to quench the Spirit. I'd like you to read with me. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And you're on notice, by the way. Romans 6, 13, all together. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Amen. I have found, I, I don't know about you, I have found three scenarios that keep me from from yielding unto God that caused me to begin quenching the Spirit. Three situations where I tend to stifle the Spirit. The first is prideful independence. Like that kid who couldn't swim, sometimes God allows me to get a scary dunking just so that I can wake up and realize that I 
I desperately need his help. Second is a dependence on something lesser, like the, the New Testament contrast with wine. Anytime I turn to some narcotic or some person or something for strength or peace, I've rejected God's help. Not that all drugs are bad. Please don't write me. God made our bodies. It is scripturally appropriate to take medicine as it is needed. But the abuse of drugs and alcohol in our culture is nearly epidemic among Christians. And it is antithetical to reliance on the Spirit. Third thing I have seen regularly quench the Spirit is ignorance. Just being ignorant of how God leads. For example, here's one of the most classic ignorances that I find I still think, and, and so do probably many of you. We expect only happy, encouraging applause from our Heavenly Father. Oh, it's my someone, it's my boy, right? That's what we expect. Can you imagine what a spoiled brat you would raise if all you ever gave was, oh, good boy, Jeffrey, good boy, good boy, good boy, you're such a good boy. Can you imagine? Ah, it's horrifying, right? Frank Siaka addresses this really, really well in his book, To Run and Not Grow Tired. He says, today, in our age, the Holy Spirit, the comforter from the Greek parakletos, by the way, um, he's discussing John 14 and 16. We don't have time to study those today. I hope you will on your own. John 14, um, in that upper room discourse, John 14 is where Jesus introduces the idea of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It means one who walks along beside you. Uh, helper is how it's translated a lot of times. It actually is a term from Roman military, from somebody who was bigger that would be next to you in a line, and they walked beside you and kept you in line, protected you from the sun, but also kept you going. Okay, so Siaka goes on. Uh, today, the Holy Spirit comforter from the Greek paraklos is pictured as one who's deeply moved by our pains and relates to us mostly on the level of our feelings. But the word parakletos involves providing strength more than solace, courage more than consolation, and stamina more than sympathy. It characterizes a kind of help that enables those on the verge of collapse to stand and remain standing. Seeing this distinction and understanding its implications is essential because not only will it affect whether or not we look to God, the Holy Spirit, as our first option in times of discouragement or depression, but also what manner of help we will expect from Him when we do, close quote. Don't stifle the Spirit, especially when He is providing the swift kick in the bottom that you need. Amen? The prophecies in verse 20 are describing Scripture. So to engage with God's Spirit, a Christian must not despise the prophecies. Instead, we must hold fast to Scripture. Now, we discussed this at length a few days ago. I'm not going to go into it here. However, we should note this. There is, there is an interconnection of Spirit and Word in the Bible. It's really fascinating to study. The Holy Spirit inspires the Scripture, right, working through human authors. And then the Spirit illuminates the text, revealing it to Christians in understanding. And only the text gives us accurate information about the Spirit. We don't trust the revelation from, from some guy's ecstatic experience. We don't trust the supposed revelation from some gal who ate too much pepperoni pizza and had a weird dream, right? We trust God's Word and God's Spirit, which work in tandem. And listen, they never, ever, ever disagree. Finally, God teaches us to test and flee the falsehoods. You see that in verses 21 and 22. We also discussed this at length just a few days ago. Here's the only thing pertinent to add. There are a few falsehoods that are specifically related to God's Spirit. And here's what's funny about them. They sound spiritual, but they actually mess up yielding. They really do. They mess up our yielding. Most of these falsehoods are couched in uh, unbiblical, very emotional terms. 
For example, there is absolutely nothing in the Bible about, uh, this is a phrase I hear a lot, ecstatic experiences of new revelation. That's not in the Bible, okay? Neither is second blessing or heart fire or higher life or second grace. These things are actually antithetical to Scripture. Please, now, that doesn't mean that we need to throw rocks at our dear brethren who peddle such warped dogma. That's not the point. Just do this. Test their ideas against the Bible and just throw out the nonsense, right? Folks, we should follow our forefathers in Acts chapter 2 and build lasting lives, churches, communities. That means we have to yield to God's Spirit by rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks in everything, for this is God's will, not stifling the Spirit, not despising prophecies, testing all things, holding on to what is good, and staying away from every kind of evil, because that makes all the difference. As we say in our notes, look at our notes, Spirit-filling changes everything. I want you to look at a hymn that Paul writes over in our parallel passage in Ephesians 5. We, we read up to verse 18. Now, look at what he does in verse 19. He breaks out in this beautiful hymn which says this, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. This is so clever. Okay, there's a chiasm of thought in this hymn. If you don't know what that is, a chiasm is a classical writing tool. is isn't used today very often, but it was used a lot back in, in the classical era. And it works like a, a yummy dessert pastry. There are, there are layers of, of pastry leading up to a cream filling, okay? In this passage, the outermost section could be titled, Spirit Filling Changes Relationships with Other People. When we engage with God's Spirit, which is the immediate context of this passage in Ephesians 5, the immediate context is when we engage with God's Spirit, when we are Spirit-filled, it positively changes our relationships with other humans. Look, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. When I submit to the Spirit, it changes my relationships for the better. Max Lucado has a great story about this in his book, um, Outlive Your Life. I like this book. It's a goodie. Uh, story time. Max Lucado says this, in 1976, tremors devastated the highlands of Guatemala. Thousands of people were killed. Tens of thousands were left homeless. A philanthropist offered to sponsor a relief team from our college. A flyer was posted in our dormitory, needed. Students willing to use their spring break to build cinder block homes in Quetzaltenango. I applied, was accepted, and began attending the orientation sessions. There were 12 of us in all, mostly ministry students. All of us, it seemed, loved to discuss theology. We were young enough in our faith to believe we knew all the answers. This made for lively discussions. We battered about a covey of controversies. I can't remember the list. It likely included the usual suspects of charismatic gifts, end times, worship styles, and church strategy. By the time we reached Guatemala, we'd covered the controversies and revealed our true colors. I discerned the faithful from the infidels, the healthy from the heretics. I knew who was in and who was out. But all of that was soon forgotten. The destruction from that earthquake dwarfed our differences. Entire villages had been leveled. Children were wandering through rubble. Long lines of wounded people awaited medical attention. Our opinions seemed suddenly petty. The disaster demanded teamwork. The challenge created a team. The tasks turned rivals into partners. I remember one fellow in particular. He and I had distinctly different opinions regarding the styles of worship music. I, the open-minded, relevant thinker, favored contemporary upbeat music. He, the stodgy, close-minded caveman, preferred hymns and hymnals. Yet when stacking bricks for hours, guess who worked shoulder to shoulder? And as we did, we began to sing together. We sang old songs and new, slow and fast, 
Only later did the irony of it dawn on me. Our common concern gave us a common song. This was Jesus' plan all along. None of us can do what all of us can do. For that reason, you find no personal pronouns in the earliest description of the church in Acts chapter 2. Close quote. When we are filled with the Spirit, it changes our relationships with people. We submit to one another, speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It also changes our engagement with Jesus. Look, that's the second layer of our chiasm, engagement with Jesus. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime I yield to God's Spirit, it will always direct me to Jesus. Always. That's why Jesus talks so much about the Spirit reminding us of Jesus' words and how the Spirit will, will guide us in Jesus' name, in His path and according to His style. And now look at the, the middle layer, the cream filling. When we yield to the Spirit, it changes us so that we are able to express eternal gratitude to the Father. That's the cream filling, the ability to be close to and give thanks to our Father, right? Relationships with people are changed. Speaking whether it's Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, submitting whether it's fear of Christ. Engagement with Jesus is changed when we're filled in the Spirit. Sing, make music from your heart to the Lord in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it changes how we are with the Father, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. Remember what we learned back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8? Here, here's, here's what I said. When we give thanks in everything, we get off our entitlement high horse and we position ourselves to be filled with the Spirit. Well, well, this is another aspect of this positive cycle that we saw earlier because being filled with the Spirit, we're moved to thank God all over again for everything. That's the big issue. That's the middle of Paul's hymn. Thanksgiving leads to yielding. Yielding leads to thanksgiving. It's a positive cycle. So, let's ask ourselves some hard application questions. Right now, right now, today, am I filled or not? When it's filled or not, there is no try. Right? Which is it? Which am I today? If I am not, what's in the way? What influence am I under instead? Am I trying to get across the lake of this life on my own power? Remember, when, when we work in the flesh, we flounder. Am I relying on some other influence instead of God's Spirit? It's not going to work for long. Eventually, it will trap me, and I will fall on my backside in a bush. If I want to water ski behind the power of the Spirit, zipping across life tethered to Him, I must give thanks and yield to Him. I must stop trying to get along by any other means. I must let the Spirit get more of me by rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks in everything, right? Stop stifling the Spirit. Quit despising Scripture, testing all things, holding to what is good, staying away from every kind of evil. Read it again with me. You take the underlying text. Rejoicing how often? Always. Praying. Constantly. Giving thanks. Stop stifling. Quit despising. Scripture. Testing. All holding to. Staying away from. Amen. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I just want to wrap this up in a word. Help me and help my brothers and sisters in Christ accept your ski rope and zip along under the Spirit's power. And Lord, I, I'm certain there are people praying with me, studying with me today that are not believers in Jesus. They... they <laughs> They can't be tethered to your spirit because they, they, they're not part of the family. They haven't been baptized in the spirit. They haven't been identified with you because they haven't become part of your family. Friend, listen, it's really simple and really deep. 
You become part of God's family by trusting in Jesus, period. You see, God the Son came to earth and he died on a Roman cross for you. Because he loves you so much, he gave up his life because only he could pay for the sin that you and I have. You know you have sin. And we're not perfect. We can't pay for it. We try to get to God on our own, we drown. But God, in his love, sent Jesus. And he paid the price for everyone who would trust him. And then, and then he rose from the dead so that everybody who believes in him could, could follow him in everlasting life, could have the paraclete, the one who walks beside, could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Trust him right now. Right now, confess that you believe in Jesus as Savior. If you just trusted Jesus, raise your hand. Everybody else is praying. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Lord, I pray for all these who are believers that we will accept the ski rope, that we will yield to you because that changes everything. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.